Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. I like this book. It's good. It's good. Um, all right, well, we're back. Uh-huh. After uh, what has been for me a long day. Uh-huh. Ending it with a nice uh, bit of podcasting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Jack well, almost choked on the word nice. Then. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. No, we're We love back. podcasting, do we not, Jack? Love podcasting. It's just, <laughs> I think this was like, today... I mean, without getting to work bullshit. Today, I was just like, I actually had to work <laughs> <laughs> and not prepare. Um, and I was just like, oh, Christ. So uh-huh. you know, f- 15 minutes before Dan showed up, I was like, make notes. <laughs> um, and here we are with, again, it, you know, I always, I say that. It's like these notes were hastily scrolled. But like going back through all of my notes, even when I had time, it's like. They're all hastily scrolled. They're all hastily That's just my handwriting. Yeah. I'm just a yeah, yeah, yeah. garbage. I make copious notes as a process of trying to read and process whatever text it is that we've read and then yeah. I refer to them basically not at all. Yeah, occasionally. Yeah. Occasionally. Yeah. I mean they're trying just... to like put a stream of consciousness onto a consciousness onto a page so that you can sort of then absorb that stream of consciousness without actually reading it. It's exactly. my strategy. <laughs> I mean I think I like when I look at them when I record they mean something completely different. It's like, I can't like, they're just words. Whereas before it's like, oh, this means something. Now it's like, what do these words mean together? What the fuck was I thinking? Anyway. <laughs> Podcasting. It folks. is funny, isn't it? Sometimes it things seem desperately profound and then <laughs> you come to try and explain them or think about them with someone else and you're like, eh, maybe, maybe yeah. not so much. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. Well, we're back at it. Winter is here. Today. Or not winter. It's kind of winter. I mean, I don't know. It's fall. Uh-huh. Um, equinox. So the listener is going to have to get ready to hear us talk about planting broad beans again pretty soon, <laughs> which long-time listeners will know. And complaining about the shortening days yeah, and how desperately difficult it is. Oh, that's so difficult. Uh, wait I mean, it, it is. Wait till it's getting dark at half past four. <laughs> mm. Oh, God. I mean, I think the difference in terms of like when, it's, when the sun sets between here and where I grew up is only like an hour. Not in terms of like literally, in terms of like time zones or whatever, but like, but it feel. Oh man, that hour is like. It you gets, you yeah. mean at the sort of like, the winter and the yeah summer the peak solstices. And the dip. Yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I think also I realized that I like equinoxes more than solstice. I just there's something like, ah, it's good yeah. about it. Yeah. It's a bit much. Solstice, <laughs> solstices are a bit much. <laughs> they are. Yeah. Because I mean, you're never happy because it's like. I guess you're kind of like, okay, we're coming out of it, but we still have months to go when it's, you know, like winter or whatever. But then summer, you're like, oh, it's over already, basically. It's downhill from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. And it is possible to have too much daylight. That's it what is. I found this year. It is, yeah. <laughs> definitely is, yeah. Oh, well, oh, well. Oh, man, I don't... Have you noticed recently that town has just smelled like garbage? Just like, like, like feces? No. I looked this up because <laughs> I had to close all my windows because it was smelling so bad. And I looked it up. I just Googled weird smell. Um, and it was like, yeah, every year it's their lane manure. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah, blast yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had never come across that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I recently spent my abstinence from podcasting in a very <laughs> rural area uh, next to farm and fields. Uh, and yeah, they were constantly spraying. Yeah, I got, I got caught in it. Oh my before God. I went home, I was like on a field and I was hearing trucks and like they were going by and I like, yeah, it it's was gruesome. Bad. It's gruesome. I like actually put on my mask because I was like, I probably shouldn't be breathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, um, I'm sure it's an incredible, incredibly sustainable farming technique. Yeah, and, uh, sure. We shouldn't worry about it at all. Sure, I'm sure it's thought. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fine. There's, no, there's nothing going wrong with farmland at all. It'll mm. all be fine. Okay. I had an interesting experience the other day. Huh. I ran into some uh, comrades in town. Interesting. Explain. Uh, some some young folks from the <laughs> um what were they from? Uh McNair. Oh, from the from, they were they were they had a stall in town representing the Young Communist League. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Which is the youth wing of the British the Communist Party of Britain. Not to <laughs> be Christ. mistaken with the Communist Party of Great Britain. <laughs> Of adequate Britain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I, what's the background with great with Britain? Um, so basically, in the early eighties, I think uh, some of it is covered in covered in the uh, introduction to this book. Some mm. of these ideas. Um, in the, I think, in the early part of the eighties, a faction of Euro communists took oh, over the the Communist Party of Great Britain and proceeded to scuttle it, basically. <laughs> and um, the Marxist-Leninists minority within the communist party of great britain split and formed the communist party of 
Britain in the 80s and it continues to exist and they took with, they took with them because the morning star was the paper of the communist mm. party of great britain um but the marxist leninists maintain control of the morning star and so the morning star is now although i guess operationally independent <laughs> is the party is the paper of the communist party of britain i've just kind of always associated the weekly worker with mike mcnair but is it the paper of the Communist Party, Party of Great, of Great Britain? Britain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Come on, Jack. It's just organizations and their various publications. I mean, yeah. it's not that difficult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So I had a nice chat with those. Cool. Those, those um, youngish people. Thought they might be very young. I thought they might be students, but they weren't so dissimilar from <laughs> me in age. So didn't have to feel too. We're so it turns out I'm not young enough to be a young communist anymore. You are not young enough. Yeah. Okay. Oh, damn. What's the cutoff? I think thirty or twenty-nine. Oh, all right. I can still be there. Yeah. I'll be your. I'll be your eyes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are they? Yeah. Uh... I think they're a sect. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that makes sense. Um, and I think they're Marxist-Leninists. Okay, that was my next question. Yeah. Were any of them wearing flat caps? No. Okay. They were. Yeah, they were very. They were very. Yeah, they were nice. They were nice. Cool. Nice folks. And I think they're local, so. Maybe I'll find them again. Yeah, right on. Yeah, and they were collected for a food bank. Ah. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I commended them for their good works. Growing up, I used to volunteer at a, like a soup kitchen thing. This was when I was in high school. And it always kind of, it was really cool and really fun to do. And I did it for a while, but it always kind of rubbed me the wrong way because it was part of the local, I think, Catholic church. It was, it was just like, why don't, you know. I don't know. Why do I? Why do I got to do this through the Catholic Church? You know what I mean? It's kind of putting a stain on the whole thing. So I like hearing that. I like hearing that commies are giving out food. Excellent. Shout out to them. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. Speaking of sex, and, <laughs> uh, what did we read this week? Because uh, long time coming. I think we talked about reading this. We've been talking about reading well, this. Yeah, for we've ever. talked about it many times. It's been. Yeah. I guess it's been. Uh, What's the podcasting equivalent of reading between the lines? Like yeah. Somewhere between the episodes. <laughs> the negative space, uh, I suppose. Um, there's some, probably some kind of Zizekian language I could appropriate. There, appropriate. Um, <laughs> Something about impotence. And lo- long ago, we talked about it on our episode interview that we did with Tom O'Brien. Oh, yeah. That's right. Uh, and I, 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 Well, but uh, let's, let's, let's cut to it. Everybody knows already... <laughs> <laughs> don't leave the people don't waiting like belaboring things <laughs> i like this how we always sort of have this sort of pseudo dramatic <laughs> introduction to what it was that we read but like it's in the yeah, you can it's quite it. evident yeah. what it was that we read there will we, be a fake title on this yeah episode, so we read state and revolution yeah. this week <laughs> i mean you know after last week when i got into we got into quite a defense of lenin we yeah. are going to get to the point where we end up reading state and revolution i unironically thought that this week i was like we should read that yeah um, no, 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 not this week anyway. Not this week, folks. This week we read Ooh. the first three chapters of Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy, fundamental text of our contemporary uh, renewed Marxist left mm. or Marxist center, I suppose, yeah. Marxist uh, movement. Can I just um, say Revolutionary Strategy? Subtitled, uh-huh. I think it is important, Marxism and the Challenge of Left Unity. Mm. Anyway. There you go. Yeah, there you go, folks. Thanks for that correction, Jack. <laughs> um, and I think, I guess this came about because we ended up reading, we read, we read The Anatomy of the Microsect last week, mm. which was in effect a um, strategic document, I suppose, a document on strategy. And um, one which is... Uh, influential on our contemporary left, the contemporary Marxist movement. Um, and so here we have another text which is equally significant to um, the contemporary and present renewal of Marxism that is happening. Um, before our eyes. Before our very <laughs> eyes, folks. Before our very eyes. <laughs> and uh, we can discuss an entirely different form of Marxist center, I suppose. Yeah. Well, Which is all that's all that we want in life. Yeah, this is C E N T R E. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of went into this thinking that this was going to be very much a like, you know, 
the next installment of our reading series in things authors write where everybody is stupid other than them <laughs> and it's just critiquing the entire time and this definitely is that mm. but i mean the main reason this rocks right is just because like kind of if you agree with it or not it's a plan <laughs> it's like wow look at that <laughs> it's a plan that's pretty cool mm. you don't get many like actual well thought out plans these days mm. um and I'll say a good plan at that. Yeah, 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 and a very, a very concise text, one which necessitates some amount of familiarity with the history, I suppose, but not a huge amount. Mm. He explains one, it pretty well. Yeah, 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 and one which certainly introduces ideas that, um, I mean, the left has not traditionally been exposing people to over the. It's recent history. I mean, it's fair to say this book was written in 2006, right? And there are some ways in which it is, it sort of feels dated. It's definitely written at a point in which the Marxist movement uh, was at its absolute nadir. And now that it's in some amount of fledgling recovery, there are some aspects of this that do seem out of date, particularly its polemical nature and... I suppose the intended recipients of its polemical critique, mm. um, maybe not groups or grouplets that anybody's interested in critiquing now or engaging with now, um, but certainly uh, very relevant also. And I think also a book which is going to have a new edition at some point in time. Oh. Yeah. So there'll That'd be, be fun different to see. Sex An updated edition. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny because right. this is very much right, like in the weeds of like specifically British sect infighting kind of thing. Mainly, like it's kind of just the introduction that's like that. Chapter yeah. one, I guess, kind of maybe a little bit, but um, nothing that is like you want to put it down. Because he also he does like a pretty good job of whenever he has like an issue with the sect of kind of being like, here's why this was an issue, blah 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 blah. So I don't want to like give off the vibe that's like impossible to read because of that or like it's outdated or anything. Um, and I mean, especially, right, it's definitely not outdated because he's like pulling from ideas that for him of like, these have existed for a very long time, right? Like he's putting forward the Marxist idea of like an actual strategy, right? Um, at least I guess as it exists to him, as it exists to like, you know, Kautsky and fellas like that. Um, but again, yeah, very refreshing. And I mean... We've only read the first three chapters, and I'm invigorated. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth just sketching the basic structure of these first three chapters. It's basically chapter one is a defense of the Marxist strategy and why it's still relevant, and then chapters two and three are just a sketch of uh, various strategic positions that he wishes to identify um, the right, left, and center tendencies as they existed in basically the Second International. So this is mm. mostly politics drawn from sort of turn of the century social democratic politics um, he, he's basically right just putting forward a long-term strategy for a class independent political party to bring about communism right and he he, he starts off in chapter one just by just uh, giving a definition of the marxist party and he basically just says a marxist party then is consists in principle of nothing more than a party which is committed to the ideas that the working class can only emancipate itself and like because of that humanity through struggling for communism and that the struggle for communism can be victorious through the action of the working class. And I mean, basically for the rest of the chapter, I think like all of the like actual uh, ideas that he put forward are just extrapolated from that. Right. Because one of the ideas that he puts forward, or I should say one of the questions that he puts forward is like, how do we deal with coalitions and governments? Do we, do we do coalitions and then just, kind of become labor, which is like, he makes the point, which is just like a, co it's like a, this is like coalitions all the way down because it's just a coalition in and of itself at this mm -hmm. point. Um, uh, and I mean, like, I guess if you just look through that, is that one sentence? Yeah, that sentence describing like what the Marxist party is, you can kind of like pick out what his answer is going to be, right? Because it's like, yeah, I mean, we'll get into it, but that is basically what I'm going to guess this entire book is built on, is building the Marxist party having this long-term goal and he uses like a, I don't want to say like analytical because I don't want to imply that this is like analytical Marxism or anything like that. But like he does have a, like he goes into history and is like, here's why I'm saying these things. Here are the examples from history, blah, 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 blah. I'm right. Everybody else is an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of, um, a lot of this, which is very familiar to us, right. From reading 
basically all of those readings that we've done from Hal Draper. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are familiar with the idea that Marx's basic strategic premise, I suppose, is that it is only through the working class emancipating itself that communism can be achieved. And there is no process whereby a minority of any kind can install socialism or communism. The end road, the end point of this strategy as presented in this text is one whereby the communist movement grows to the point where it represents a majority of the population um, and, it, and it's in no way a minoritarian politics, I suppose. And he does an interesting thing where it, but one of the ways he distinguishes the Marxist centre from both the left and the right is that the Marxist centre is interested in um, or operates basically a strategy of patience, right? Yeah. It's um, gradually building up the movement um, in preparation for the moment when you can either demonstrate, well, you, well when the, the point of time in which you're put in the position where you can prove that you have a majority support of the population, um, whether that's in some moment of crisis um, or whether that's through winning an electoral majority, the, the strategy of patience and the Marxist centre strategy would say that it's only at that point that you're in a position whereby you can fully implement your minimum program and potentially move into the, the sort of phase of the transition that we might tentatively want to call the dictatorship of the proletariat. But yeah. that's it's only when the proletariat can demonstrate that it has majority support that it can actually begin to actively um, suppress the bourgeoisie um, and implement changes, implement its programs such that the state and the nature of the economy is so fundamentally changed that you cannot move back toward capitalism. Um, and he suggests suggest that it's at that point you might actually consider some kind of coalition with other class forces if they're willing to come over to your program. But at no point before that should you ever um, consider being the junior party in any kind of coalition of any sort which mm. would be that would be representative of the right's minoritarian politics the right is willing to attempt to affect change implement a strategy which is accepts the possibility that they might be in the majority but they might be able to uh, make steps toward communism anyway and similarly the left implies that um, you can go from a point of being a minority in terms of your political actions apropos of uh, uh, a mass strike which is their what she represents as the left's major uh, uh, sort of uh, tactical or strategic um, platform I guess platform option mm. yeah <laughs> um, but it says that that always comes that in all likelihood also comes from a position of being in minority and isn't it doesn't give you the opportunity to represent yourself as being majoritarian in your politics yeah yeah, I want to go back to that idea, I think, too, of like what the what the proletariat party would be able to do, the workers party would be able to do only really if it had, right, like a majority on the political stage, right? Because like if we think like, OK, so if we think about like the reading that we did, uh, the Shlomo reading from last week, Two weeks except, ago. some weeks ago, <laughs> a time ago, when he when we basically came across Marx's ideas, right, on um terror revolutionary terror as kind of like an embarrassment of the revolution as not really being able to implement anything and i mean that ties in very neatly with this idea of like all right hang on guys let's wait until we're actually majority so we don't have to go around and like kick a bunch of ass to do what we want to do ass will need to be kicked but it's you know how much ass needs to be kicked and i mean that also kind of ties us into the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat that we came across in the fundamental principles right i mean this all kind of vibes with a lot of what we've been reading weirdly enough <laughs> um and i mean i think it's easy to maybe see these two books meaning revolutionary strategy and fundamental principles as opposed somehow but i think that might be a bit of sect brain because like it's very easy to see how a political party could have you know at its core like hey value time 
or like, you know, socially necessary labor time calculation, guys, that's the thing, getting past uh, socialism, if for no other reason than actually having a plan for after capitalism. But I mean, like, in that book, they make the point, like, there needs to be a certain level of support before you can just go around doing this, right? Like, the dictatorship of the proletariat for them, I guess, right, was nothing more than just implementing labor time calculation. But, like, since that book said nothing really about the organizations and, like, the process that will get you to that point, it was just everything after that point. Um, a strategy like the one being put forward by McNair here really vibes with that really, really well. Um, I don't know. I think that's just kind of good to note on because you kind of would maybe think that like those goddamn Council of Communists, lefties, ultra lefties, but like, um, yeah, these two ideas do definitely vibe together. And I think that this, again, like this is just a very level-headed, straightforward way of being like, well, how are we going to get to that majority point? Um, I guess maybe there could be some problems with it, but we'll, we, I, I don't know. We'll talk about that later just because I think that like, I don't want to focus on the good. I really dig this a lot. I guess it's important to say that Mike McNair is broadly in defense of um, a political strategy that stems directly from Marx. Mm, sure. And he's also attempting to uh, reintroduce us to the idea and promote broadly the political strategy of the Marxist center which was represented by people like Kautsky, who were in the leadership of the German Social Democratic Party, but also like the Bolsheviks broadly followed this platform up in, at least up until 1914, right? So they were also like members of the Marxist center, I suppose. Mm. Which is to say that Mike McNair is intending to defend uh, core principles of Marxist politics. Um and is it basically implying that the sort of the strategy that's prevent that was presented by Marx um, for the workers' movement and for the socialist movement of the 19th century is almost more relevant to us today than any strategy stemming from mm. political events of the 20th century or at least like post 1918 yeah. politics, right? Which he basically he, he he argues for that point on based on two premises: one that Capitalism today is global in a sort of in a sort of in far more to a far more greater extent than it was in the twentieth century, and also um, the workers' movement and the socialist movement is a very similar low ebb as to what it was in the nineteenth century. Basically, in Marxist day, it was just getting going. Um, and one of the things the Marxist center um, of the second international can be credited with doing was actually building a movement right mm. um compare this to what hal draper was saying last week where um no sect has ever built gone out and built a movement yeah in some ways like hal draper's strategy from, that we read about last week is basically the early stages of what leads into this strategy from this book um as the working class movement develops and as you need to develop a party, this is the kind of party that um, one would want to develop or one ought want to develop. And this is the kind of strategy that one ought want to lead once you get to the point where you have a sufficiently active uh, workers movement. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because like just in this one chapter, there are he gets on in the later chapters, like he said, the later chapters that we read, meaning one, two, and three. <laughs> um, Come on, you know how this goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he gets on later to kind of talk about the right and the left, right of 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 the left, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, but in this chapter, he has answers to kind of like quite a bit, and I mean. Where we're at now, I guess, like, whether or not we want to say that, like, the labor movement is maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, mean getting some energy that it didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, I, I, I really thought that was, like, very interesting just in terms of, like, him talking about trade unions in this chapter and about, like, we need to kind of shift the, like, the th I guess a way to phrase this, we need to shift, like, the, the theater of struggle, right? To, from basically just like your workplace to the district. And this kind of has a parallel with what he's saying and kind of what you're talking about with like the international uh, uh, character of capitalism now is 
the struggle that he basically makes the point like needs to go from basically just being like a national struggle to a continent-wide struggle. There's a very similar thing going on with him saying that we need to shift the theater of struggle a little bit more concretely from like your workplace to a district. And I really, really appreciated that. I'm just going to read what he says. He says, the implication to all of this is not just goodbye to the working class, but rather that the means of struggle need to change. They need to shift from the workplace collective organization to district collective organization. It is also that the trade unions need to become again an alliance of the employed and the unemployed and one which performs significant welfare and education functions rather than just simply being an instrument of collective bargaining of wages and conditions. And it's like, man, can you imagine if like, trade unions had an actual interest in like the communities that they represented how how dangerous that would be yeah. you know what i mean for like an established order like i don't know it, being able to combine the struggle that you have at work for like hey shorten my goddamn working day and give me more money um with your boss and everything to like the actual collective needs of the working class i remember like a while ago there was a weekly worker article where the title of it was by mcnair was something along the lines of like how about we try marx for a change it was basically (laughs) just making the point that like we need to actually have a class-based political movement and a class-based movement rather than just like this kind of you know unionism or or anything like that but basically i think just the point here is that like when shifting from the workplace to the district you take on basically the entire burdens of the working class because it isn't simply the, just the working class, obviously, right? We're communists. We don't just want the working class to just have more money. We just do more money, give us more wages. Like there are a lot more things that go into being working class and the problems of being working class than just like not having enough money or just that money basically exists at all. But I mean, like the implications for this for organizing are huge too, right? Because it's like, it's going to be a lot easier to get people to listen to you when you're actually like, wow, imagine this involved in people's lives and concretely making them better and not just having the union line, right? So like he's putting forward a really great strategy here for how can we build a movement, but also like how can we be helpful too and like actually make this a class-based thing Mm -hmm. and not just economism, right? Which rocks. I really, really dug that. There's a point in this where he's talking about the the success or the potency of the miners' strike in mm. 84, 85, I think it was, in Great Britain, um, and how it was so successful because it wasn't necessarily just a campaign for, um, for primarily, entirely just for the workers in the mines, but also there were huge mining communities that were decimated by exactly, the removal yeah. of those workplaces and also... Um, so heavily implicated in this strike were also the families, the dependents of those people who were earning those wages in those workplaces kind of thing. Um, So as you say, it's not necessarily just a question of the workers in the workplace, but it's also the people who live in those places that lose their jobs and are now not workers, but um, used to ex-miners per se, or like Mm. those communities that subsist on um, on those jobs and those wages. There's a section in this where he talks about the proletariat being those people who are dependent on the wage fund. Yeah, that was that was to fantastic. mean um, the sort of like dependents, the spouses or children of miners, mm-hmm. um, unemployed, employed. and the unemployed miners yeah. as well. Yeah, um, but there's a, yeah, the, but that point sort of like hints at a sort of deeper theoretical one that's being presented here, right? Which is what he's saying is the sub the substance of Marx's strategy. Is to build, obviously, to build, <laughs> building a political strategy around the political actions and the political emancipation or the economic emancipation of the working class. But the question is, why the working class, right? Hmm. And there are a couple of um, reasons, a couple of answers to that question, why the working class is presented in this chapter or in the first chapter here. One of them is one which um, McNair attributes to Marx and one is one that, will seem very familiar, but I think maybe is sort of secondary in Marx's understanding. Um, the one that McNair is championing is the idea that the working class, the proletariat, is important by virtue of the fact that it's separated from the means of production. It's that fundamental sort of like separation and the 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 fact that their the emancipation of the working class can only be achieved by their reconquering the means of production. And then uh, McNair quoting from um, 
the political program of one of the a French party from the second half of the 19th century that Marx helped um, draft the program for. Um, it's in that uh, program of the Party Ouvrière where Marx is saying that, okay, the proletariat really needs to, if it is to emancipate itself and therefore humanity, it needs to reconquer and take over the means of production. And there are only two ways that one can imagine um, reappropriating the means of production, right? It's either you acquire it as personal property to you, i.e. the kind of like property forms that are represented by uh, the peasant class or the petty bourgeois class, right? You actually own some means of production of your own. And then Marx dismisses that very quickly to say that like that as a general form for how society, how the ownership of um, property happens in society has never existed in history. And with the growth of capitalism, it's sort of like uh, put even more and more out of question. So if the means of production can't be held personally, then it has to be held collectively. Um, and therefore Marx is making the case that the proletariat, the propertyless class is the only one in a position to organize fully enough to uh, conquer and then control the means of production for themselves. Mm. Um, and then stemming from that, like the, the alternate version of that, the one that's put forward by people who advocate for trade unionism, sort of pure trade unionism, or I suppose perhaps even like a non-socialist workers movement would be to say that what's important about the working class is they have a position to exercise power in the workplace, in the site of production, which would be one which limits the working class to only those people who are working. Yeah. Whereas... Um, one which says that what's important about the proletariat is their very propertylessness also extends the concept of proletariat to, as you say, those people who are um, unemployed or the dependents of workers. Yeah. Um, I think it also, too, just speaks to, like, just, like, the lack of being able to think about anything at all by the right, right? And I don't mean, like, the right of the left. I mean, like, the actual right, right? Mm -hmm. It's like whenever you hear someone talking about, like, man, we just need to go back to this. We need to go back to that. Like, McNair makes the point here that, like, it is impossible to go back to single-family production or anything like that. Like, in order for things to change and things to get better, you do have to look to the future and you do actually have to imagine, okay, well, exactly what you're saying, like, who are the people who are capable of having a future that is more just and that it would like make sense, right? And it's funny, like when we talk about the actual like tactics of a party, it's it's so funny because it's like, I don't know, this makes a lot of sense to me. And when you talk about like district organizing and stuff like that, it's like, wow, it's almost like the things that are best for people are the best tactics. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like if you're actually <laughs> helping people, that's like the best way to go. Um, so it's always nice when you come across something that is like not just moralistic for the sake of being moralistic. It's like strategic. Hey, and it's moralistic. Yeah, Look at yeah. that. It's weird how those two things work <laughs> for communists. That's weird. Very strange. Well, it's, yeah. It's coming back to how dreadful last week. Like, yeah. You subordinate your interest to the interest of the class. Exactly, yeah. Don't do it the other way around. Don't try and subordinate the class to <laughs> your sort of petty sect politics. Sect. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the, because you brought up reminis things that in this that were reminiscent of the fundamental principles reading that we mm. did. And there's another, another aspect which is reminiscent for me. In that text, there's this heavily, heavy impact heavy significance is placed on the idea that capitalism has developed to the point where um, production has been socialized, right? And there's a corollary in this that um, in the Marxist political strategy, which is following on from that, right? This necessity to conquer um, the, the means of production and run them collectively rather than uh, for personal gain, I suppose, or for personal use is the collective ownership of the means of production is the only one which um, accepts that production has been socialized and moves toward de democratizing that production kind of thing. Um, so there is an overlap between this political strategy and the sort of the politics of the authors of the fundamental principles, I suppose. Yeah, not to be like a red thread guy, but it's weird how when you look at like what Marx and Engels were talking about, like, oh, weird. <laughs> you mean all of those people who adhere closely to what Marx and Engels yeah. were saying? It seems, yeah, about, it seems yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> it seems nice and good. Um, I mean, I guess we could talk about why 
people deviated in what ways there are some yeah deviations yeah, i don't know whether we want to move on to talking about the left and the right and yeah i think i think we definitely should i mean it's so fr- it, I, i'm just just to say up front it's very frustrating that like all of these deviations seem to stem from people doing exactly what I just did, which is like, look at what Marx and Engels said. And it's like, well, that's kind of, it's kind of just not what they were talking about at all. It's like, I don't know. It's very frustrating. Um, do you want to talk about the right first or the left? I'll, I'll let you pick. I, right guess, I guess McNair does the right first. He does do right? the right first. So, yeah. So this is more chapters two and three. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, I suppose what he's talking about here <laughs> is when he's talking about the right is do we join coalitions? Right. And, if we are to join a coalition, what how what would that look like? Because I think he's saying that like nobody is necessarily against very short term like votes with people who are perhaps a little bit more bourgeois than yourself, which is to say everybody else, um, for the sake of survival, for the sake of surviving as a political party, right? Like mutual things, like universal suffrage doesn't really exist in the United States. Hey, it would be nice if we agreed with the left bougie parties. Let's do some universal suffrage in the United States. It would be mutually beneficial. That's fine. But I think what McNair is talking about when he talks about the right of the left is, you know, he poses the question, should we join coalitions and be the junior partners in governments? And he's like, let's take a look at how that is, <laughs> how that's uh, wound up for people, communists who have done that in the past uh, throughout history, up until basically the present day. He wrote this in 2008, I think. Um and the answer is 100% of the time, unsurprisingly, poorly. It's turned out where you either just become the Labour Party, which is a coalition of a coalition, or you just like literally become like the Brazilian Workers' Party in Lula, uh, the, the liberals. So yeah. it's just like, okay, the answer is no. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the general tactical statement ought to be one should never seek to uh, represent... Because you're going to inherit, you're going to end up advocating for the interests of the capitalist state and the capitalist class. Yeah. Like if you seek to administer the state, you're going to end up administering the affairs of capitalism. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's tricky, right? Because you want to be, you have to be in these bourgeois forms while at the same time openly being like, yeah, we're trying to get rid of all of this. Like this is all bad. We're trying to move beyond capitalism, move beyond whatever you know republic this is, and get to get to something new so like i guess this is more tactically like how do you walk that line right like how do you agree to be completely against something but be in it how do you make yourself still um what's the word like uh you don't want to be judged badly by the working class by being like yeah we're against all of this but now we're just democrats right so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i guess the the um The the claim of the right at this period of time, and it's not necessarily that you can understand why people fell for it, right? Like things were advancing so rapidly. The political prospects of, say, the German Social Democrats were um, were such that uh, they seemed to sort of represent a movement of progressive change that was unstoppable. And it's 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 basically a, your basic reformist politics, right? Like you can uh, win via participation in the political system of your country, sufficient re- reforms for the working class, such that you can advance towards fundamentally changing the nature of that system and that society. And the 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 basic political strategy is one of. Um, dampening the radical nature of your politics and seeking mm. to be acceptable to other classes and the representatives of those classes, other political reform parties, or even like um, conservatives in whatever country you're in kind of thing. Thinking that is a legitimate tactic toward winning reforms. I guess it's fair to admit that or to say that um, representatives of the Marxist right were... Um, still in some fundamental ways Marxists in the sense that they had in mind the liberation of the working class as their aim initially kind of thing. It's not like they sought to abandon the interests of that class, at least not immediately, but their strategy was um, very political. 
Yeah, <laughs> but I was going to say inept. Oh, <laughs> like, okay, yeah. Like not a winning one, <laughs> <Sure>. necessarily. <laughs> I mean, it makes you think that the question, right, of reform versus revolution that we came across almost a year ago um, is just the wrong question, right? I mean, it just kind of poses it in terms that are, again, there's a word for this that I'm going to forget, but that are just wrong, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's like that's a misrepresentation of what the actual question needs to be because it's like you are allowed to be a political party and not be a reformist, yeah, right? Yeah. And that, that's what McNair is saying. It's funny how he just answers the question of like, um, well, how do you be a political party and, uh, you know, not give in to like these bourgeois demands? And his answer is like, don't. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, anything else on the right? I did, I did think it was interesting. Again, I brought up how this, like, you know, this is a British book where he basically just talks about British politics. Um, I did like that distinction we've brought up a couple of times just about the Labour Party as being a coalition inside of a coalition. And what he means by that is just like, yeah, there are radical elements within the Labour Party, but to survive, they have had to become a coalition in the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. Like, it isn't the Labour Party isn't like a radical, certainly not anymore, like, communist party right mm -hmm. like it is a coalition of soft radicals and yeah just yeah. yeah one might look toward the labor party and say hey here is a pit here is a quote unquote i suppose workers party which successfully won a majority and was able to implement its policies as the the government of the country as opposed to having to be the junior partner in a coalition with other parties and seek to have your policies implemented that way right it is possible yeah. for reformists to win a majority but as you say uh mcnair's retort to that is to say well the labor party won a majority by becoming a party that was in essence a coalition yeah. right like, recursion yeah. <laughs> i am a coalition mm-hmm there was something I wanted to bring up when we were talking about. I suppose it's, it has its has its um, has a relevance because we're talking about labor parties, but also before when we were talking about trade unions and um, a politics which seeks to represent the interests of workers rather than the interests of like mm. um, a sort of more extended and extensive concept of what the working class is and what the proletariat is. Um, I was thinking in that context that it is in some ways possible to win reforms for certain workers in certain industries, but not have those be um, uh, representative of victories for the class in and of themselves kind of exactly, thing. Exactly, yeah. And there's an extent to which his sort of general critique of the right is one to say that, well, um, by accepting the sort of constitutional structure of the country in which you live and by accepting that you're willing to administer that state, you are administering um, that sort of like portion of world capitalism and you administer that state and that portion of world capitalism in the interests of only one subset of workers. Um, and so what the right does is totally neglects or forgets one of what McNair says is one of the central tenets of Marx's strategy is to say that the workers' movement should always be internationalist in its outlook, mm. whereas the right always abandons internationalism with the interest of representing only its national uh, working class and will inevitably end up diminishing um, or harming the working classes of other countries in, as it as seeks to upheld up protect its own working class particularly in the moments of like economic sort of global economic decline i suppose yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and then also there's the idea that like what the right demanded of the left was that the left jettisoned this marxist idea that as a state falls into crisis the capitalist class would always retract concessions as it's made to the working class in good times right the right wouldn't acknowledge that this was a possibility or wanted the, le the left and the center to say this wasn't a possibility, that crises didn't have this effect, that um, that ref reforms could be lost as well as won, right? Mm. Um, this is one of the reasons why one or operate a strategy of patience and waits for the point when you can implement reforms that do not have the prospect of being taken away kind of thing. Um, that... Not only if you adopt the sort of right strategy, those reforms might end up being taken away and you will have done nothing to prevent that, but you might actually be, end up being complicit in 
taking those rights away, if you end up administering the state and administering um, that state's capitalist economy, mm. you become complicit in that undermining of working class interest eventually. The inevitable yeah, undermining, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And you might even end up um, supporting your nation state to the point where it actually goes to war with other states, which is obviously what happened in 1914, right? Like, yeah. Both the right and regrettably also the Marxist centre sort of fell for this trap of like, when it comes down to it, you need to support your own state and its working class against the state and working classes of other countries. But mm. that's another question. That seems just no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right. Well, should we should we smack down those goddamn lefties? Yeah, Dan, those, those hippies. Um, I mean, basically, the left that McNair is talking about here is a strategy, a political strategy that relies on a mass strike or a general strike. Um, and it's funny because it's like, nobody's against a general strike, right? But M what McNair is doing here is he's saying that cannot be your strategy. That just has to be a tactic, right? Like, of course, we're going to be for strikes should they appear and should they, you know, do good things and we'll work on expanding them or whatever. But like, that is not <laughs> a good strategy for taking and holding power. Um, because he's like, just think about what happens. And let's say you were to have like the perfect general strike where it isn't just, you know, uh, factory workers who make Laffy Taffy going on strike. It's like everybody goes on strike. He's like, okay, well, that inevitably will affect the working class and it won't be unsust It will be unsustainable. You won't be able to sustain it, one might say. Um, and so like, okay, what do you, what, what happens then? And then he also just kind of talks about like, it's, I wasn't expecting him to have the line that he had on, like, all power to the Soviets. He talks about, okay, you know, this line of that the Bolsheviks had of all power to the Soviets. What would have happened if they actually stuck to that? And he said that the Soviets, the reason that they couldn't just give all power to the Soviets was because it would have just been completely unsustainable uh, during a period of war, right? Like, the decision-making apparatuses there just were not in place. Soviets are more rooted in the concrete, like, actual working uh, uh, places, <laughs> workplaces, one might say. Um, and that form of organization just that springs up because of mass strikes or because of, you know, mass workers movements, something like that just can't sustain themselves or replace the state because the state does much more than just represent people at their work. Um, and so he basically says that there's, he, he talks about this a lot with all the different movements and things that he criticizes. He talks about the positive claims and the negative claims, right, of these movements. And he says that the negative claim of the left is that we're not going to do politics because you're going to have to form a coalition and coalitions corrupt, right? And so we've already seen why that's kind of like a false dichotomy there. And then he makes the, the positive claim, though, of the leftist is, okay, if we have a strike, <clears throat> we can always expand it. We can always generalize it. And again, kind of what I was just saying is like, that's not necessarily a good thing if you were to just shut down work forever. Because it's like, unless you can form, you know, non-capitalist forms within capitalism across all of society for every job, which you can't, like, this isn't, just isn't really going to work. Um, so, I mean, yeah. And then I guess he just goes into talking about authority and this kind of ties into like his ideas on the soviets right and about how you know you need to be thinking bigger than just a mass strike because a mass strike in itself is i almost said it's not a means to an end but it, it to the end it's not the end itself it is a means to the end right it is the idea i guess of just tactics versus strategy you can't pin all your hopes on a mass strike because what's gonna happen then right like you're either gonna hurt a lot of working class people or you're just not going to have the forms that you need, the organizational forms, to do the dictatorship of the proletariat or even just look after people more concretely. So lefties owned. <laughs> yeah, the the both the the positive and negative claims as he presents them of the Marxist left are basically connected by this idea of authority, or as you as you bring it up. Um, the positive, the sort of, is it a positive or negative? I don't know. The, the positive <laughs> claim, should we say, is that by seeking to form organization, um, you are inherently setting up sort of like bureaucracies and forms of authority which are always going to turn on 
the movement. Mm. And there's quite good, I suppose, quite good evidence of that. I mean, one only has to look at the 20th century to see examples of uh, bureaucracy or leadership of parties, like undermining and completely eradicating any semblance of democracy in their parties or their countries and moving toward various forms of dictatorship. But McNair basically says that if you adopt that as a principle, right, we have to hold out for the mass right, for the sort of semi-spontaneous uprising of the working class and use that as leverage to make demands. You basically, basically are suggesting that no form of authority is legitimate. There is no way to prepare for, prepare any type of organisation which will be the organisation of the new socialist state, I suppose. Um very lazy so yeah that's so that's kind of their negative claim right the negative claim is that organization is generally always bad mm. and it, this authority. is re- authority yeah it's true which is sort of reminiscent of what we've read about council communism and left communism right like this waiting for the spontaneous action of the class rather than doing preparatory work work building organizations and building systems of well i think i think not necessarily they're not like allergic to any kind of organizations Uh right like they would be for organizations that would lead to this end that is the mass strike right they they would be fine with that but yeah as you say like it would not be anything as level-headed as hey politics maybe Mm -hmm. like getting Mm -hmm. involved with that i think that's probably fair to say it's probably fair to say that there's probably a plethora of opinions on the Marxist mm. left and some of them are yeah. more toward accepting some possibility of organisation some of them are generally left, sort of skew toward the left calm end of the spectrum and mm. are just generally um, allergic to the idea of organisation Manek seems to be suggesting that there's sort of, sort of a tendency toward that at least suspicion of authority and organisation. Authority 100% yeah. yeah. But then he's saying that their positive claim is basically that the working class through the mass strike, is in a position to demand the implementation of the party's minimum program, the implementation of uh, systemic change, I suppose, which is an extrapolation. So the, I guess the, the strike, the idea of a strike is that you use it to make demands of your employers, right? So the extrapolation of the strike strategy the generalization of the strike strategy to say, well, we can, through a mass strike, we can actually make demands of the capitalist class and the capitalist system itself. Um, but again, for McNair, this boils down to a question of authority, right? Like, say you have the perfect general strike, you have the perfect mass strike, you manage to shut down all of society. How long can society go on without yeah. basic provision of goods? You know, how long can it go on without education or uh, medical care or any type of logistics you know it just can't function and so sure okay under the best circumstances you could shut down society but if you've no done no work toward creating the alternate power structure the alternate authority structure that's going to step into that void you're just creating this void right um and so through the sort of question of um organization and through the question of party through a strategy that's orientated toward organization and party, you can actually create the alternate parity structures that would be the bedrock of the quote-unquote dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah, I mean, we've come across the idea, right? You know who doesn't come across well in this, Dan, is Bakun, and I'll say that <laughs> right now. Weirdly enough, wasn't expecting that. But I mean, like, we've come across this idea before, right, of, like, anarchism, which is, like, the ultimate, like, as you say, like, allergy to kind of, like, don't tell the anarchists I said this, but like doing anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is probably unfair, but you know, what, what are you going to do? We've come across the idea of like when anarchists kind of like envision their future society, it is, as we've said before, wanting to be part of society and be free from it. And it's a very similar thing when it comes to far left ideas on authority, right? It's like if you were just to completely reject authority, you're just opening the door for really bad authority to come up because it's like, okay, you're not organizing anything, but inevitably some kind of authority is going to have to spring up. So it's either going to just be awful uh, or going to fall apart completely, right? You need to like put in the effort to make like just organizations, right? And I mean, that kind of like led me kind of just back to thinking about this as like an organizational question in terms of like it had a, McNair is like a very 
cybernetic-y approach without using the word cybernetics, right? Because like the ultimate question that he's asking here is the question that's raised by the left is a good one of like, you know, how are we going to make these organizations uh, responsible to the to its base, right? Like you don't ever want to just have like an organization that just does its own thing and then just like is not responsible to the working class at all. So it's like, how are we going to organize the working class in a way where it is basically responsible to the movement as a whole. Um, and he basically says that like the uniform failure of like <laughs> kind of like any kind of organization like this opens the door to, hey, maybe we need some new ideas about how to organize things. And I was like, <laughs> McNair, have you heard of the Bible systems model? Um, yeah. I suppose there was one thing that I was just going to say about the strategies of the left and the right as McNair presents them in that they're both reminiscent or even draw their lineage from uh, politics and strategies that Marx actually actively polemicized against, right? You were right, right to bring up Bakunin in relationships to the left, right? Like the the politics of the, the Marxist left are in some ways stem from Bakuninist and anarchist politics are ones which Marx actively argued against. And the same with the politics of the right, right? The politics of the right are reminiscent of uh, Lasallianism. And also, when we were reading the text on Marxism and um, and terror, we came across these, the, there were these quotes from Marx that were talking about him um, objecting to any coalitions with other classes, right? The working class movement should never ally with or seek to court other classes, particularly in that context, the petty bourgeoisie, right? So in some ways, this is a way to sort of set up a brief discussion of the Marxist centre, I suppose. Like the Marxist centre was the sort of like continuity branch from Marxist politics and these other strands, the left and the right, were um, outgrowths of politics and strategies which... Marx actually argued against, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it's funny too, right? Because when we talk about like those left tendencies, and I don't know, in even the right tendencies, it's like they just become the things that they're criticizing, right? Because it's like, obviously you see that with the right because it's just like, hey, okay, we'll go into a coalition, but then we're not going to be bourgeois, right? And it's like, okay, you're, you're literally doing the bourgeois thing, mm -hmm. right? And then with the left, it's like, I would like to 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 read some Bakunin just to kind of know what was going on in this guy's head because it's like, okay, we won't have any kind of authority over the working class. We don't want anything like that. But then we're going to do a putsch, guys. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? Um, yeah, and again, I think this just kind of comes back to like why this is this these three chapters of this book are so refreshing because it's just like, Okay, let's analyze everything that we've tried to do, right? Let's analyze everything that is that all of the theories and all of the different movements that have actually been built, and let's see which ones have been successful. And he goes, hey, you know, surprise, surprise, it's like the long-term, like, build up your forces. Because it isn't a, like, right-wing, like, let's just have power over the people and do it ourselves. It still is this idea of, like, the working class needs to do it itself. But, hey, how can we build these organizations and these forms where we're using what we have now, the state, and we're building something new, meaning these like class-based organizations, to let the working class do it itself, right? So it is like a very refreshing, just like, oh, there you go. It's horseshoe theory. Dude. That's what it is. <laughs> it's Marxist horseshoe theory. <laughs> yeah, one needs to we need as Marxists to develop a strategy which is actively minded toward how this transitionary process from capitalism to socialism is actually going to happen we need an active strategy for how we're going to bridge the gap mm. the right imagines there's going to be no gap mm. and left the left imagines that the proletariat is just going to emerge spontaneously able to uh, administer and create the new society and the Center strategy is one that says, no, we have to do active work now to build the movement, to build up the resources, to build up the capacities of the working class if they are to fulfill this role of emancipating both themselves and humanity in its entirety 
which is the central sort of strategic claim of Marx, right? Like, um, to achieve communism, we have to empower the working class. Okay, how are we going to do that? Yeah. It's through mass organization and it's through building the capacities of the working class and not through sort of like um, seeking to stand above them or rule them or lecturing dictate. Or do nothing. Or do nothing, <laughs> yeah. And just let the forces of history happen, <laughs> baby. One, th one thing, I mean, maybe this will get talked about later on in the book. I know that there there isn't, um, just from reading the introduction, there's not going to be anything about ecology and all of this, but how, how does this strategy kind of sit with you knowing that, like, hey, yeah. 20 years, then it's going to be an island again. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is, like, I don't know. At this point, I'm kind of sold. It's like, yeah, this is, like, the best that we can do. And not only that, this is, like, the right thing to do, um, but it's also, like... there is There is the feeling that the only, well we cannot be patient when it comes yeah. to environmental breakdown and crisis. But also like, I don't know. I, I've only kind of just started to come to terms with like how crisis works in it's in theories of like left politics, because it's always just kind of seemed to me to be like a left form of accelerationism of like, but just wait for the next business cycle, the next crisis and then everybody will figure it out. Which isn't true, right? Like, it's not like a, you know, neo-Nazi, like, fucking accelerationist bullshit. Um, that's, like, about as anti-working class as you can be. But, like, there is definitely something to the idea that, like, when crises happen and, like, here's the proof that, like, there's a thing called a business cycle and here's the proof of, like, you know, the inevitable uh, changes that are coming with, with uh, the climate catastrophe, that that does bring about questions in the working class of, like, yeah, maybe we do need to do something else, right? Um, and I think, obviously, for, like, people around our age, like, and younger, like, the most radicalizing thing is obviously the climate, right? Um, and so, I mean, like, maybe that will speed up the process. I think, just say, hopefully it will speed up the process, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess we'll see. I mean, it would seem to be the case that a great many millennials and Gen Z... Zoomers. Zoomers. <laughs> um, are quite happy to rhetorically declare that the climate crisis is a crisis of capitalism. Yeah. But beyond that knowledge, I don't know what is... What, what the left has actively done so far to push that further. Mm. Um and it's 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 one thing to prepare yourself for, to um, it's one thing to prepare yourself to step into a void that's created by some kind of constitutional or economic crisis, but to prepare yourself to step into the void that's created by the climate crisis is another by thing famine. entirely. Because yeah, you you end up like ruling the wreckage, I yeah. suppose. Like, like. And also, it actively, in some ways, it may well actively curtail the possibility of. I don't know how whether I agree with this because it's kind of like it's kind of like determinist in some respects, right? But you do need a certain kind of economy and a certain kind of productive capacity, and a certain kind of productive planet, just abundant planet, yeah, to be able to have the abundance that one would expect from socialism and communism. Sure, and whether the climate breakdown is actually threatening the possibility of at least of like a any kind of desirable post-capitalism in the even the immediate term um it's open is an open question for me but a very scary and problematic one i suppose like, yeah what if we can't have communism for a thousand years because we've fucked it yeah <laughs> it's basically what I'm saying. well i mean i think no matter what right there's going to need to be some kind of end to this is kind of a different conversation but like there is going to need to be an end to the kind of like limitless possibilities of consumption under communism it's like okay come on that's not yeah, true yeah, yeah. and i mean like you know as marx himself would have said like the source of all labor or the source of all wealth isn't just labor right it's like it's labor and nature it's like it'd be nice to have some nature <laughs> you know <laughs> to, to do communism with um so we'll see. But I mean, again, like this does, no matter what, no matter what the time frame is, <sighs> um, this does, what McNair is putting forward here does seem to be like a very reasonable approach to how to harness 
the momentum that could come from a crisis. And even when there's not a crisis, it's uh, not only is it is it a level-headed thing to do, it's also the right thing to do, mm-hmm. to make a class-based mm-hmm. movement, because mm-hmm. what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the preparatory work that's going to yeah. position us to actually be able to act yeah. when it's necessary. Yeah. I think it's also, though, I think it's just a good way of thinking about it, where it's like any wor- any step in this direction is acting. Any step in, like, district organizing is acting, because, sure. like, you know... You're well, yeah, yeah. As long as you're actively improving the lot of people in need, then yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, McNair, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's put my uh, uh, next crisis of uh, of mind off for a little while. Thinking about <laughs> thinking about uh, the environment. Um, all right. Well, yeah, we'll be back to read more of this book eventually. I'm certain of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should I look to see what the next chapters are? I don't Why know. Not? We haven't talked about which chapters we're going to read next. There are cha- there, there are, are like future nine, chapters. So maybe <laughs> you know what he's going to. Yeah, you know what he's going to um, talk about, which I'm interested in, mm. is war and de- revolutionary defeatism. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, I would imagine we'll get something along the lines of revolutionary defeatism can't just be what Lenin said because Lenin again was acting in a very specific time in a specific mm-hmm. place and this is very different so mm-hmm. you, know. you mean we can't be supporters of ISIS on the grounds of <laughs> revolutionary defeatism if McNair comes out as a fan of the ISIS sect <laughs> I will be stunned okay. <laughs> um, but yeah next three are war and revolutionary strategy communist strategy in the party form and unity and diversity so we'll see if those work together then maybe we'll read those and if yeah, not, why not? other ones something else yeah. but that won't be next week yeah we'll, we'll figure something else something out. else we got something huge yeah. coming next week <laughs> you believe that you believe anything <laughs> no they're all huge yeah this yeah well there yeah exactly um all right very exciting nice very nice, exciting nice, we need nice. to track down those uh communist party youths and uh get them to read this book I would imagine they probably already have, but... I don't know. <laughs> okay. Don't know. Well, no, I think... I think uh, yeah, no, I think... Mm. It's probably a banned book mm. in the oh, Party of Britain. Oh, okay, I see. Right. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. All right. Certainly not a prescribed reading. No, it's probably Shame. prescribed. Mm. Anyway, fuck it. I'll yeah. work out my terminology. <laughs> banned. <laughs> banned. Prescribed can be used in terms of things being banned as well as things being... They prescribed a ban. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right. Let's cut all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. It's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Unless you can't tell. Well, it's folks, you've come to, to a end. close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I got to eat, and I'm very tired, Dan. Uh-huh. So I've been Jack, and this has been Anxiety Statements. I've been Dan. Thank you, Jack. You're Thank welcome. you, the listener. If you've made it this far. <laughs> Many congratulations. Cue the SNL music. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll see you next week, everybody. Bye. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People 2 by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.